The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Throughout history, dreamers have opened the door for positive change that reshapes the world. Our dreams and stories can also attract individual prosperity and success. Join creative artist Valerie June, Aisha Ophelia, Jacqueline Suskin, and Sarah Walco for The Power of Radical Imagination, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Ignite your radical imagination and cultivate positive change. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I had just arrived in London at 18 and spotted this movie marquee, Meetings with Remarkable Men. The film was about the philosopher Gurdjieff, but it was the title that spoke to me. I wanted to know people like that, people changing the world by the way they lived. I've sought them out ever since, and now we'll hear from many of them on the Victoria Moran podcast, Meetings with Remarkable Women. Welcome to the podcast. Your host, Victoria Moran, author of Creating a Charmed Life, Younger by the Day, and Main Street Vegan, invites you to conversations designed to help you thrive in your body, cozy up to your soul, and use your unique gifts to change the world. Now, here's Victoria. Don't you love learning about what other people do, especially people who do things that just seem glamorous or romantic or like, gosh, maybe I'll do that in my next life. Well, we've got somebody like that today, and I can hardly wait to introduce you. Hi, everybody. I am Victoria Moran, and I am so pleased that you are here to learn more about a remarkable woman, because I'll bet you are one, or maybe you're a remarkable guy. In whatever guise you are remarkable, welcome to this program, and I am looking forward to having so much fun for the next hour or maybe not quite that long, because someone that I have admired for a very long time is joining us today. She is Eunice Wong, a Juilliard-trained actor and Audi finalist narrator who's performed across the country and narrated for publishers for publishers, including Penguin Random House and Simon and & Schuster. Vegan for nine years, Eunice wrote the books for the films What the Health and Cowspiracy. She's taught acting at Princeton University, poetry at New Jersey State Prison, yoga at Lit Yoga, and is mom to two young vegans and two retired racing greyhounds. Renaissance woman, welcome, <laughs> Eunice. Thank you, Victoria. I'm so excited to be here. I just love reading people's lives in a nutshell because <laughs> they're just so beautiful. And I think so much of our time, you know, maybe 
driving kids places and cleaning up and all these things that don't seem so amazing. But when you put it all in a description, it's just so beautiful. Yeah. It's like a little haiku poem, especially when you're like, <laughs> you have to put it into three sentences and then you think, oh, quick, just distill everything down. <laughs> yeah. Well, yours distills really beautifully. <laughs> so you are a Juilliard trained actor. So of all of the hundreds and thousands of young people, probably every year who want to go into acting, just a tiny, tiny, tiny few make it to Juilliard. So tell us how you got there and what that was like. Well, I auditioned uh, while I was in high school um, and they accept, uh, at least when I auditioned, they accept about 20 students per class. And I think the numbers were something like about 1,500 apply. Um, and of the roughly 20 that they accepted, about a third were out of high school. So um, I was one of the youngest. And I, um, it was actually an English teacher of mine who planted the idea in my head uh, because I said I wanted to be an actor. And he said, well, you should think about Juilliard. And I thought, that's insane. Nobody gets into Juilliard. Um, but then I couldn't stop thinking about it. So I did my research I you know you know when like an idea takes takes hold and it like that seed just starts to grow and I just kind of became obsessed with it I you know learned my monologues and I um I visualized it happening the audition uh and then I went to New York with my dad and they audition in New York Los Angeles and uh Chicago at least the time that I auditioned, they may they may do it slightly differently now. Um, and it was it was a crazy day that started with, you know, one round of auditions for uh, I think it was three. Oh no, let me let me go back. I haven't thought about this in a while. It started with a group warm up. So there were uh, all the kids, <laughs> the kids who were auditioning that day in a big room together, and we do. <clears throat> some exercises, we do some vocal warm-ups, and then we would go in individually to do our monologues for, I think, three faculty, and there were different rooms. So, you know, they were sort of seeing many, many, many students at the same time. And then after the first round, there was a callback. I made the callback, and it's so funny thinking back because it was pre- internet pre-phone times so it was just a sheet of paper with names on it taped to a wall and we all gathered around like locusts um and then after the callback there was another cut and by then it was you know the evening and the last thing was an interview with three of the most senior teachers um and i i made it all the way through and I uh, couldn't quite believe it. I was pinching myself the whole time and found out a few months later by phone when they called me that I got in. Wow. What a wonderful story. And I love hearing the kind of pre-internet uh, days stories. <laughs> Isn't it, <laughs> it amazing? Was, it was taped to a wall and then they called. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I know for people who weren't around for that, it all sounds odd. But to yeah. me, it just seems so real and, mm -hmm. and pure. And of yep. course, I fantasize that we'll go back to that. But 
probably no such luck. I know, me too. It just seemed very direct, you know, because they were handwritten names on a piece of paper. You got to hear, you know, Kathy Hood called me on the phone. She was the managing, um, the manager of the the d drama division, and I got to hear her voice over the phone. You know, it wasn't an email, and I still remember the day she called. It was like just before I was leaving for school and my mom was in the shower and I started screaming and I think she thought something terrible had happened. <laughs> um, but it was just me like being extremely excited. Oh, I can imagine. And you talked about hearing her voice, but your voice is really your fortune. I mean, you're an actor, you still do acting with your body and mm -hmm. all the rest of it, but you do a lot of narration and a lot of audio books. Yeah. So were you blessed with a wonderful voice or did you nurture that voice? Um, I, I think it's probably a little bit of both. Um, I mean, Juilliard as a as an acting school is very well known for its voice and speech training. Um, and so we did a lot of vocal production, a lot of speech. So sometimes people get confused between the two. Voice is more about the support, the breath, um, the actual physical production of the voice. And speech is more about the enunciation and breaking down the different sounds that we make, um, the consonants, the vowels, the diphthongs, uh, and and making those in a in an efficient and um, uh, stage ready uh, <laughs> stage. We used this book called "Speak with Distinction," um, and it taught the sort of American stage speech that's kind of neutral, but you can always add on accents on top of it. But it's sort of what you would do for, say, Shakespeare, you know, in this country, just something neutral, but clear and understandable. Well, you do it beautifully. Uh, we oh, talked thanks. before we started this interview that I'm listening to one of the books that you've narrated and you told me you narrated it quite a while ago. It's called Why Religion by Elaine Pagels who is absolutely one of my favorite authors and such mm -hmm. a mentor. She wrote a book called The Politics of Women's Spirituality that I read back in the, golly, it would have been the 80s, <laughs> late 80s. And it, it just opened up worlds for me. And so now to hear a book written by this woman who's been so influential in my life, read by someone that I'm now meeting in this interesting way just seems so full circle and yeah. you do it beautifully we talked earlier that sometimes I listen to audiobooks particularly about yoga and um, eastern spirituality where so many of those terms are, are not pronounced the way I have always heard them pronounced and when I hear them in a way that it just sounds wrong to me. Oh, I it have just such takes a hard you out time of it, it, right? It does, but you yeah. were telling me why perhaps that is. Well, so, I mean, there are so many reasons that it could happen, um, but the process of uh, creating an audiobook basically works like this, where the narrator is cast and... I know a lot of publishers will make an effort to cast narrators who have a background or at least some familiarity with 
the topic of the book, especially if it's nonfiction. So say like it was a book about Eastern spirituality, it would be a very good idea for them to cast someone who had a background in that or in yoga or, you know, some familiarity with those terms. Um, but that's not always the case. Uh, and it's really, it's part of the narrator's job to prep the book, meaning you go through and you look for all the unfamiliar names and words that you don't know and, you know, make a really good effort to find those pronunciations before you start recording. Um, sometimes the author is available for uh, pronunciation help, sometimes they're not. You would be amazed <laughs> at how many authors write their book and have no idea how to say the names and the words in it. <laughs> That's happened a lot to me. Um, but there are resources online uh, and the audiobook industry uses a couple of them uh, sort of as primary sources. One of them is Merriam-Webster Dictionary. Um, one of them is a website called Forvo.com. Sometimes we use a website called Youglish to find proper names of, uh, of people. Um, and so the narrator is supposed to find as many of these as possible. We record the book and then the raw files go to an editor who proofs the book for mistakes, um, checks pronunciations, and if they find a pronunciation mistake or a misread um, or like say a funny sound under a word, then they send us what they call pickups, which are basically corrections, and then we we re-record those sentences in which the mistakes happen. Um, and so the pronunciation question, it's a little bit like it's the narrator's job. It's also the proofer's job to make sure that the narrator found the right resource. Um, but sometimes, you know, sometimes that <laughs> falls between the cracks. And then the other question is, sometimes there are multiple ways of saying something. Um, not only that, sometimes there are very unusual ways of saying things that are actually the right way to say things. Um, not that I think this is the case with those Eastern terms you were thinking, but like I was telling you, I had this essay to record about the uh, the bean that chocolate is made from, which everyone I've ever heard in my life has pronounced cacao, right? But according to Merriam-Webster, it's cacao. And this word occurred, uh, I don't know, like a hundred times in this essay. And so if I had said cacao and my editor had gone to Merriam-Webster and realized that they recommend saying cacao, they would have come back with a hundred pickups and said, it's actually pronounced like this, even though no one in your life pronounces it this way. So, you know, it's really, it's, there's a lot of factors going on. And uh, sometimes, sometimes things are pronounced the way we think they are. And sometimes they're really not. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that helps me because I am an audible addict. Mm -hmm. I, I just am listening to books all the time. I don't know what I did before, <laughs> before we had audio books at the ready. So back in the days of books on tape, I recorded a couple of my books and in those days, everything had to be done somewhere else. So mm -hmm. I went to a recording studio at HarperCollins for the first one and an independent recording studio for the second. How does it work now? Do you have a studio in your home? 
I do have a studio in my home, um, and this is a relatively new thing since the pandemic. Um, and in fact, I didn't really do a deep dive into recording audiobooks until uh, until COVID hit and shut down the theaters. Um, I had done a couple of books for Audible before that, but it wasn't something I pursued. Um, but going back to the home studio question, once all the studios were shut down for the pandemic, it became imperative for audiobook narrators to be able to record at home. Um, and you can actually start with a very, very basic setup. Like a lot of narrators actually start recording in their closets uh, because the clothing and the small space gives that sort of appropriate sound deadening where you don't have any reverberations or resonance from the room. Um, so, you know, you get a you get a decent mic and a, a preamp and you have your computer and you plug them in and then you're basically ready to go. Um, <laughs> I say that with a very large caveat, which is that there's a lot involved in treating the room, making sure that, you know, you you know how to use the equipment um, and how to use your your DAW, your um, your recording software. Uh, and I don't think that there were so many home studios before COVID. I think it was a lot like you experienced where people go into professional studios, um, they record it, they have an engineer, sometimes they have a director. Uh, when I record at home, so for instance, tomorrow I'm recording a book for Penguin Random House from home, I'm going to have a director remotely patch in through Zoom, but I'm not going to have an engineer, uh, which means I'm going to be self-engineering, pressing the buttons myself, recording myself, sending the files myself. Um, I actually prefer going into a commercial studio because then I just get to be the talent. You know, I can just, you know, sit there and read and I've got this experienced professional engineer who's taking care of all that tech stuff. I've got a director um, and I don't have to worry about pressing the wrong button or sending, you know, the wrong type of file because I am really tech illiterate and I just know how to press the right buttons. Um, but yeah, so now I'm like right now I'm speaking in my uh, my booth, which is a uh, it's a prefabricated. It's not soundproof, but it's sound treated, and it helps keep some noise out. But the problem with recording where I live in New Jersey is that the lawnmowers and the leaf blowers and the planes all still get through, so that can be very frustrating. I relate to a degree just doing podcasts because mm -hmm. I started out in radio and I was on Sirius before it connected with XM. I was oh, on the wow. Martha Stewart channel, did oh, two wow. shows a week. <laughs> and it was so thrilling to go into that tall building in Midtown Manhattan with my two swiping cards <laughs> to get through <laughs> two different places. And to have the living, breathing engineer sitting there doing all that stuff. Yeah. And to not have to think about it. Yeah. I could get real nostalgia about all that. Yeah. Nostalgic. And I'll tell you, as an audiobook narrator, I am three times more efficient in a commercial studio with an engineer than I am at home because my ears are not, I don't have 
the training of an audio engineer to know what kind of noises are okay to leave, right? And that the editor can deal with later and what kind of noises are not okay to leave that I would have to re-record. And so I can get into this sort of second guessing myself and I think, oh, was that a, was that too much mouth noise? Do I have to go back and do that again? And so it's this very jerky, you know, process where it's hard to get into the flow of narrating. Whereas when I have an engineer, I can just trust that they're listening to me and they'll stop me if there's something I need to redo. And I can just release that part of my brain and focus on the performance, which is all I really want to do anyway. <laughs> Does the performance, is it at all colored by how much you like the book or how interested you are in the story or the topic? Honestly, yes. I mean, the answer really should be no. <laughs> um, and when I get a book that I'm not as crazy about, I, of course, do my utmost to, you know, make the book sound as good as it possibly can and never allow anything in my voice to give away maybe that I don't think the writing is as good or that I don't think much of the story or whatever the issue is. Um, that's actually a bigger feat of acting than than some of the emotional stuff that, that I have to do. Um, but, you know, as a professional, that is your job to make the book sound great and to elevate it, you know, with, with your telling of it. Um, but I can't deny that there are books that I have absolutely loved narrating. And when I do those books, there is definitely something that I feel like fuels my performance of it. And I'm not sure that that's replicatable. Um, it's just when you love the material, I think that comes through. Mm. Oh, it's also interesting. And actually, if you are interested in this sort of thing, listeners, we will put uh, Eunice's various URLs in the show notes at victoriamoran.com. But just for now, she's Eunice Wong Narration on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So you've also done acting, acting, where we get to see your face. Yeah. So what was life like as a young actor? You'd been to Juilliard and now you're out. What mm -hmm. happens? <laughs> well, can I just say one thing before we leave the topic of audiobooks? Sure. Um, because you asked about audiobooks that, that, you know, when I love them, what it does. I just want to mention one in particular, because I think your audience might really be interested in it. Um, it was a book I did last year called The Mountain in the Sea, and it's a literary sci-fi novel. Um, and I would say, even if you don't like sci-fi or think you don't like sci-fi, I might check this out because um, the premise is that there's been a discovery of a hyper-intelligent octopus species that has developed alongside human beings for they don't know how long. And the protagonist is the scientist who's trying to understand these octopuses. And as a vegan, it is it is an incredibly vegan book because it looks at other beings, other non-human beings, and tries to ask these big, big questions about what constitutes language and culture 
and um, consciousness, right? Like how do you relate to another animal who is so different from a human being in terms of their consciousness, right? If you have an octopus who's basically got nine brains and has got like a little brain in each of their arms and it's this, uh, in the book they describe it as a ring-like consciousness, right? Concentric rings of consciousness moving outward. Whereas we as humans are more like a ladder, like we're, we're top down and it's all hierarchical in our bodies. So this book was, is still hands down my favorite book that I've ever narrated. Um, and the themes are, you know, apart from language and culture and consciousness and connecting to other non-human beings, a lot of it is about the exploitation of the oceans um, and the damage that that's doing to the planet and to the human species. Anyway, I just wanted to give that a little plug. It's called The Mountain in the Sea by Ray Naylor, and it's my favorite project ever. Great. Well, we'll link to that as well. It sounds amazing. I, I saw the movie, My Octopus Teacher. Oh, yes. And it might be my favorite movie of all time. Yeah. Yeah. I love that movie. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. Uh, from whom we will be learning, I think, as, as uh, things progress. And I think mm -hmm. that certain species that we haven't thought that much of may turn out to be our greatest teachers. Agreed. So, this is a perfect segue into why you're vegan. And unlike almost every other vegan I know, you made the choice initially for environmental reasons. So mm -hmm. why did you do that? And why do so few people do it? Oh, gosh, that is a great question. And one I constantly ask myself, I mean, there is a wonderful... Uh, Wendell Berry quote, and I'm apologize to Wendell Berry if I'm misquoting him or paraphrasing, but it, it's something like, when you damage the earth, you damage your children. And I have two kids, they're now 15 and 12. And I've been, you know, I've been in what I considered an environmentalist my whole life. And and then I saw Cowspiracy in 2014, the documentary by Kip Anderson and Keegan Kuhn, and it blew my mind because I had no idea about any of those statistics. I had no idea how the animal agriculture industry was affecting every aspect of the planet, you know, from like greenhouse gas emissions to the oceans, to the rainforest, to land use, to water use. I mean, I I was literally like my jaw was dropping open through the whole thing. And I just, my husband and I just felt like we could not continue eating meat, dairy, and eggs, knowing the environmental consequences of it, because we want our children to have a habitable planet. And, you know, now we're, we're in April and We've been having, I'm in New Jersey, we've been having 80 degree days and it it's terrifying to me. Um, and why do people not, why do they not do the same thing, like change their diets to help the environment? I mean, it's such a simple and direct thing 
that you can do. Like, we all complain, and with good reason, about not having the power to control legislation or to make uh, corporations or companies stop polluting. But we can change what we eat, right? That is the most direct thing we can do. We can do it several times a day. And we just thought, if we don't do that, that's just hypocrisy, right? To say that we care about the planet, to say that we care about our children and the planet they're going to live on and not make this change that we are in full control of, that is just hypocrisy and we couldn't do it. And we wanted to align what we believed in with how we were living. And so that we just, <laughs> it was pretty much instantaneous. We just became vegan after seeing it. In fact, I remember my last non-vegan meal was right before we went to see the show. It had shrimp in it. <laughs> and then that was it. We saw the, we saw the movie and we, we decided to change. Um, and our kids at that point were three and six. And we wanted, we wanted our whole family to be vegan. And that was another challenge in presenting the issue to, you know, to very young kids and not wanting to strong arm them into it or making it seem like something punitive, like we were taking things away that they liked or that their friends liked and that they considered, quote, normal. Uh, so that was a whole, whole other process. But they are both now vegan. Um, they're 12 and 15. Uh, their doctors say they're very healthy and strong. Um, and I think it was one of the best decisions that we ever made as a family um, in terms of why people don't make that choice more often. I I think it's maybe related to why people are less motivated about climate change than other issues that they think maybe it's going to happen a long time from now, despite the temperature changes. They might think that it won't affect them that much, that it's something that people in Bangladesh have to worry about or people, you know, who live on islands are going to be flooded out of their homes, but not them. So, yeah, it's a huge question, and I wish I knew the answer to it, because that would probably change a lot of things that are done in the world. <laughs> oh, I think it would. And I think that um, on Earth Day weekend just this year, the New York Times published an editorial from Peter Singer, mm -hmm. the philosopher who coined the term animal rights in mm -hmm. his 1975 book, Animal Liberation. And he wrote this wonderful editorial called Fix Your Diet, Save the Planet. And yeah. I love it that the New York Times kept those words, fix your diet. And interestingly enough, um, Singer was saying that even if you don't become vegan, if enough people cut back 50% on their animal food consumption, we're actually going to be able to get through this. We're, we're too late to fix it entirely. We're, mm -hmm. we're in it, but just do something. Yeah. So maybe we will have one of those Hail Mary passes and- um, Oh gosh, I, so. I really hope so. I mean, and then part of the problem is that countries like China have, 
you know, for so long, there was such social status conferred by eating meat. Yes. And that idea has sort of made its way into other countries, which (laughs) of all the American exports, you know, like it would be something that we'd need to do globally, you know, because if we have burgeoning demand for meat in country in other countries and you know even the if the american consumption goes down it re- it really needs to be like a collective a collective shedding of of animal agriculture yes if only changing our diet had the universal acceptance of recycling mm-hmm. and it's so much easier and tastier yes i know Although I am encouraged that this, you know, something like Peter Singer's article um, would be in the New York Times. And I have seen over the last couple of years that the New York Times and mainstream outlets like that do say, you know, your diet is related to the environment. And that was something I had never seen before Cowspiracy came out. Like it just wasn't, it, it was always like change your light bulbs. Um, recycle. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting to me. It's almost like the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing because you will see an article like that, but then you go to the food section, and virtually mm. every item is non-vegan. Every now and then, yeah. you will find something that is vegan, but it's usually I don't know salad or dip. <laughs> Yeah. And then it's, and then it's like some kind of anomaly, like, oh, here's a vegan recipe. Yes. So, so we need to move away from anomaly and how wonderful that amazing role models like you are doing that and doing it for your family. I'm just going to give that a breath and be happy for it. Throughout history, dreamers have opened the door for positive change that reshapes the world. Our dreams and stories can also attract individual prosperity and success. Join creative artist Valerie June, Aisha Ophelia, Jacqueline Suskin, and Sarah Walco for The Power of Radical Imagination, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Ignite your radical imagination and cultivate positive change. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. So, Eunice, you talked about your wonderful children who uh, went vegan in their childhood. Not the easiest thing ever. What did it take? What were some of your techniques? <laughs> well, um, there. So, I have, I have two stories about this. So, my daughter was three uh, when my husband and I went vegan, and. I still remember that the first time we ordered Chinese food after we decided to become vegan, I was trying to convince my daughter because she loved the pork dumplings. That was her thing. Um, I was trying to convince her to try the vegetable dumplings. And, you know, she's three. She doesn't want that. She wants the pork dumplings. And I was what I think of as sneaky. Um, I didn't want to scare her, um, and I didn't want to be, uh, I didn't want to say like, no, you have to have the vegetable dumplings, because I thought, okay, that's a great way to make her hate vegetable dumplings forever. Um, So I just started a conversation with her 
about what was in pork dumplings. And again, because she was three, I didn't want to overwhelm her with uh, anything scary or, you know, too graphic. But I, I said, they make, pork is made from pigs. And she looked at me like, what are you talking about? And I had put up a little picture, just a cutout from a magazine of a baby pig on the wall. And I said, they're made of pigs like this pig. And she was like, a real pig? And I said, yeah, a real pig. And she thought about it. She sat there and she thought about it. And she looked at this picture of a pig. And then she said, well, I'll try the vegetable dumplings. And she tried them and she loved them, thank God. Um, but I remember that my my um, technique or my strategy was animals, was the love of animals, which I think is the most direct way to kids, you know, especially to young kids. They're not going to understand, for the most part, damage to the planet. Um, they're not going to understand the health benefits of being vegan or the health consequences of eating meat, dairy, or eggs, but they understand what they feel when they look at an animal. And so that was, that was what we talked about. We were like, this is, when we eat like this, we hurt animals. And when we eat vegetables and non-animal foods, it doesn't hurt animals. And that was really all it took for my kids. It was just understanding that division. Um, and then I think about a year after, after we became vegan, my daughter was in preschool and her preschool teacher told me that one of the other kids had brought in cupcakes to have a birthday. And my daughter, who at that point was like four, looked at the cupcakes and said, are they vegan? And of course, they were not vegan. And then my daughter said, well, I don't want it then. And I I had never, my husband and I had never told her, you cannot have these things at school if they're not vegan, because we didn't want her again to feel penalized by it. We just thought we would take it one step at a time. And especially as such a young child, we would just let her have, you know, whatever was at school. But she decided that she didn't want the cupcake. and. Her teacher told me that I was almost fell over. I took her immediately to House of Cupcakes, which has vegan cupcakes, and she got a double chocolate vegan cupcake, and uh, and that was it. She's both my kids are committed vegans, my daughter especially, but I think it was it was the love of animals that did it for my yes. kids. What a beautiful story. Oh my gosh, Eunice. And you take me back because I raised my daughter vegan as well. And when she was about the age that you're talking about, she visited Sunday school with a friend of hers. And I said, did they give you anything to eat? And she said, well, they had crackers, but I didn't have any because the teacher wouldn't let me read the box. <laughs> and it's so interesting, their thinking. It's not like, oh, I'm so deprived. Yeah. It's like these people are hurting animals or they may be hurting animals. I'm not going to be part of that. Yeah. And I think it affects how children see the entire world. I mean, I really think 
that all of these problems we have with war and brutality and poverty and not taking care of the marginalized in our society, like the marginalized humans, goes back to the way that we treat animals. Because if there's a part of our brain that allows us to treat living creatures as disposable, as garbage, as inconvenience, or just as products that we consume, then we can do that to other people. And I remember my daughter was waiting for um, for pickup one day outside, and she said that there were a bunch of kids stomping on ants for fun while they were waiting. And she tried to stop them, and she said, I don't understand why they would do that. And I thought, that's the difference between being raised vegan and and not being raised vegan, because the ants then just become like, they're not living things worthy of life. They're just <laughs> little specks crawling around that you stomp on for fun. Whereas if you're vegan, they're, each of those ants is a living being who wants to live. Yes. Oh, uh, what a wonderful way to grow up. I'm just I'm thrilled that you're still in that process with those wonderful children because it's such yeah. an adventure. So speaking of animals, you have two other um I don't want to say children because they're adults, but uh, sweet, they're, they're sweet, small beings. <laughs> Not and so who small. are they? So we have adopted several retired racing greyhounds over the years. Um, we just adopted our fourth one. We only have two at the moment, but he's our fourth greyhound. Um, we adopted him two weeks ago. Uh, he's his name is Jet. Uh, he's eight and a half. So he's a senior dog. And he's also very big. He's about 80 pounds. He's black and he's a male, all of which are things that uh, are strikes against dogs wanting to be adopted. Because apparently the statistics for black dogs, black, especially black male, large dogs being adopted is far below those of other colored dogs. I think it's just deferred human racism. Um, so um, we had lost one of our dogs six months ago to osteosarcoma, um, and I'm still grieving him every day. And I might start to cry right now, um, but I was... Um, I was on the Greyhound Friends page, the adoption agency, and I saw this post about Jet, who had just been relinquished by his family of over four years, and he was sent back to the Greyhound Friends to a foster home because they couldn't take care of him anymore. And it just really struck me that, you know, we were a family who had just lost our senior boy and here was another senior boy who needed a family who had lost his family. And I couldn't stop thinking about that. And we ended up adopting him. Um, and greyhounds are the most incredible, wonderful dogs. I mean, I will admit I'm a little biased, but they, you know, they live these lives on the racetrack that are really pretty awful. They live in their crates for most of the day. They're let out to eat, to go to the bathroom, and to race. Um, they're not really socialized uh, with human beings. They're, 
they're not because they're not kept as pets um and they're fed rotten food that cannot be sold to humans uh their medical needs are not often taken care of um and then when they come out of the racing world they're you know the retirement age is five at the oldest then you know if they're lucky enough to be adopted then that's great sometimes they're not sometimes they're you know sent to sent overseas into the meat trade um sometimes they can be sent to laboratories uh and they're the sweetest most um laid-back dogs you know they call them 40 mile per hour couch potatoes uh because they can go 40 miles per hour but most of the time they'll probably be on your couch um and they don't require the amount of exercise that people think you know being racers they're very lazy they're like big cats and just the sweetest just sweetest sweetest dogs um like I said, we we've adopted four over the years, and my only complaint about them is that they they don't live as long as a human being. You know, I would want them to be around forever. I just love them so much. Mm. Oh, they sound wonderful. I think all dogs, well, all dogs go to heaven. <laughs> I think so too. And, but I remember reading long ago about a um, retired greyhound and the person called him sweet love in a dog suit. <laughs> That's exactly it. <laughs> so yeah. move, moving from love to love, um, let's talk about yoga. You are a um, yoga instructor, a yogini. Tell us how you found it, why you stayed, and what you love about it. Wow. Well, I actually started uh, my yoga teacher training when my kids were very young, and I wasn't uh, I wasn't acting at that point because I wanted to stay with my kids. Um, and my husband found this uh, yoga teacher training uh, in Princeton, where we live, and Honestly, the reason I chose that one was because it fit my schedule, but then it turned out to be the most wonderful school and community. Um, it was, at the time, it was called Yoga Stream, and the woman who founded it, Lara Hyman, um, she is vegan um, and was the one who really uh, initiated that journey for me in the yoga teacher training in the uh the lesson about ahimsa which of course is non-harm um i had practiced ashtanga yoga since let me think probably since about 2000 um off and on and the style of yoga that yoga stream taught was a vinyasa style um and very different, and also very much uh, focusing on things like inversions, arm balances, um, handstands, none of which I had really done before. Uh, but I loved the way that that yoga made... So from the time that I started practicing Ashtanga, I have always loved the way that yoga makes me feel um, cleared out. You know, and as I started reading more about yoga, 
I've heard it said that yoga is really a system of waste removal, <laughs> which doesn't sound very glamorous. Um, but that's really how I think of it because the breath and the movement clear things out of us that we accumulate in our bodies, whether it's emotionally or physically. And we clear that stuff out and then our prana, our energy, our breath is allowed then to move through us the way it's supposed to. And a lot of the time we think of being in a state of lacking something, right? We think when we're sick, maybe we lack something, we lack nutrients or, you know, whatever it is. But sometimes we have, I think, too much in us, too much clutter in our bodies. And to get rid of that is actually to become healthy. Um, so I love that feeling after a yoga practice where I just feel washed clean and the yoga, the breath is like a broom. And that's something that I would teach my students, you know, use the breath as though it were a brush to get all of that stuff out of you, right? When you exhale, let the exhale be like a river and all of that stuff that you don't need, let it flow out of you, right? And just leave you like a pane of glass, you know, pure and transparent. That is utterly lovely. I always like hearing people's yoga journeys because there always is one. It, it's never like, oh, I, I walked past this gym or a friend of mine was into weight training. And that's all great too. But with yoga, there's always some sort of backstory. I mean, mm -hmm. for me, I, I heard about it when I was 17 and read all three books on the subject that were in the Kansas City, Missouri Public Library. <laughs> and there, it turned out there was a teacher in Kansas City, but I didn't know that at the time. And then right out of high school, I moved to London to go to fashion school and instead found yoga and theosophy and the friends and environmentalism and this wonderful esoteric bookstore called Watkins and my first yoga teacher. And that was really a watershed moment. I think it's Dr. Phil or somebody who talks about the seven moments that change your life. Mm -hmm. And I can absolutely say that that was one of them. And whenever I talk about yoga or just my general spiritual path, which extends out to a holistic lifestyle path, it's all yoga, all wrapped up. It's just so yeah. lovable. Yeah, and the <laughs> other really... A uh, key thing for me about yoga is that it connects the mind and the emotions and the spirit. And it's the same thing as an acting where your body becomes the conduit through which emotions are expressed. You can't have one without the other. And the thing about yoga is that it becomes really clear to me that our emotions are stored in our bodies. And I have had moments in my own practice where I will stretch a certain muscle and like I'll have a little flashback in my head of something that I didn't hadn't thought of for years. And they're usually not dramatic flashbacks. It'll be like one very vivid one I remember was just sitting on my fire escape in my New York apartment and feeling the spring breeze flow over me. And that was from a certain pose that I was doing in yoga. I hadn't thought of that moment, you know, in probably decades. 
But there was something about what I was doing in my body that made that pop into my brain. And I love that. I love that our bodies are these vessels for everything that's happened to us. And by what we do with our physical being and our breath, that we can actually explore that. You can explore the memories, the emotions, and how it's all tied together. That's so lovely. And just listening to you, I just so hope that we can meet one of these days in three dimensions. Oh, I because would love that. <laughs> I love your life and, and how you live it. And so just as we wind down here, tell us a little bit about the everyday. I think everybody likes to hear, what's your typical day? So as a <laughs> yogi and a mom and an actor, just bring us in for a day and then we'll call this a day. Wow. Well, that, wow, there are so many different days. So I don't have a typical day really. Um, but I guess if I am at home and not rehearsing a play, my day would, you know, begin getting up in the morning. Um, my husband often gets up to, to help get the kids lunches ready. Um, I'll let the dogs out, go out with them, um, get the kids off to school and then if, say, it's a recording day, I will probably take a shower so that the steam helps warm up my voice, um, do some warm-ups, and do some quick admin stuff, emails and stuff. Uh, for instance, tomorrow I have a recording session from 10 until 5, uh, so then I would sit in my booth from 10 until 5 and record, taking breaks every now and then. Um, and then after I finish whatever my work is for the day, whether it's recording or admin or rehearsal. Then in the evenings, my kids often have things. They have um, gymnastics and dance and sewing and chess and what else? Singing. <laughs> They're very busy. So then we'll, you know, get them off to all those things and, you know, have dinner and that's about it. <laughs> oh, it sounds like it doesn't get any better than that. So yeah. everybody, uh, don't you love this woman? I just feel like a, a kind of friend broker, you know? <laughs> I talk to these amazing people like, don't you wish you were friends with her? Me too. So uh, Eunice's website is EuniceWong.com. And we will put that along with her uh, social media in the show notes at VictoriaMoran.com. So thank you ever so much, Eunice. It has been absolutely delightful. And thank you so much, listeners. Now go out and uh, be remarkable. <laughs> thank you, Victoria. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can learn more about Victoria or contact her at victoriamoran.com. Be part of her inner circle by joining the Victoria Moran podcast listeners group on Facebook. And if you're a vegan looking to up your game, check out Victoria's acclaimed training and certification program, Main Street Vegan Academy at MainStreetVegan.com. We spend a third of our lives sleeping and dreaming, yet most of us have no idea what goes on during that time. I'm Kelly Sullivan Walden, and as a dream expert and best-selling author, I'm here to empower you to mine the gold from your nighttime dreams. Join me on the Kelly Sullivan Walden Show, part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Until we meet again, 
Don't take your dreams lying down.